It's Wednesday, September 13th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. They got him. Danilo Cavalcante, whose name essentially means horse sing, was undone by another four-legged animal, man's best friend, unless you're Danilo Cavalcante, a dog. The escaped Pennsylvania murderer gave off heat, and then they sent in the dog. Judging by photographs, a German shepherd to nab this boy from Brazil. Fun fact, in the actual movie and book, The Boys from Brazil, the evil antagonist is tracked down to Pennsylvania, where he is subdued by, well, just listen. Dobermans were the breed that got Mengele in that movie and book. We were a bit scared of Dobermans in the 70s, weren't we? Now they seem much more easily embraced. I don't know, like Reefer or the Vietnamese. But not Danilo Cavalcante. Oh no, public enemy number one was felled by that dog. And going from footage at the scene, approximately 400 members of the state police tactical forces. Seriously, there were fewer armed Pennsylvanians at Gettysburg than behind Little's tractor rental on Route 100. A police scanner memorialized the moment of capture. The radio room, Chester County government, and the various other agencies working on the prisoner escape are proud to announce the subject is in custody. Repeating, subject is in custody. Authority of the radio room, time, 0818 hours. And then they open the phone lines for a stream of callers, all demanding the Sixers trade James Harden. I will say this for Cavalcante's future prospects. The only thing saving him from perhaps the death penalty is that he was apprehended wearing an Eagles jersey. No Pennsylvanian would convict. Unless they try him in Pittsburgh, then I would worry. Chester County District Attorney Deb Ryan said, quote, our nightmare is finally over and the good guys won. Yes, with the assist of 4,000 troops, a fixed-wing heat-seeking aircraft on loan from the DEA, assistance from Border Patrol units, all manner of man and beast in the attention of every citizen in a 700-square-mile area. Yes, you were able to capture some dreadlock dude who's been sleeping in ditches for two weeks. Way to go, SEAL Team 6, Delco Force, the 75th Wawa Regiment. But Southeast Pennsylvania will sleep soundly tonight, and one happy dog will get his ears scratched, and maybe if he's lucky, a belly rub in the name of justice. On the show today, your impeachment inquiry inquiries answered. But first, Vincent Chiraldi was the New York City Probation Commissioner under Mayor Michael Bloomberg. He is now Secretary of Juvenile Services of the state of Maryland. His new book is Mass Supervision, Probation, Parole, and the Illusion of Safety and Freedom. He talks about his experience and how things have strayed from the original goal of alternatives to prison. In part one of the interview, we focus on his time in New York working for Mayor Bloomberg, Vincent Chiraldi, up next. Vincent Chiraldi is the current secretary of the Maryland Department of Juvenile Services, among his other jobs, commissioner of the NYC Department of Probation, and then commissioner of New York City's Department of Correction. He's been a senior research fellow at Harvard and Columbia. He is the founder of the Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice. And he's written a new book, Mass Supervision, Probation, Parole, and the Illusion of Safety and Freedom. I've wanted to talk to him for a while. Vincent Schiraldi, welcome to The Gist. Thanks for having me on, Mike. 
I want to get into the book and I want to get into global questions, but I, I just, I need to talk to you about Rikers. You were once in charge of Rikers. My question is, as a New Yorker, I see all the horrors chronicled. It is the most notorious jail in America. Is it notorious because it is among the worst jails in America or because it is notorious and in the media capital of America? I think both of those things are true. I think that it gets a level of scrutiny that other jails should get, but don't. And it's a terrible jail. I mean, I've been to some decently run jails. They're not a great place to be, no matter what, right? You're still deprived of your liberty, but there's programming going on. They're clean, staff are respectful. That just wasn't true at Rikers. And it was a, it was the most heartbreaking seven months of my career. So the jail is notorious. It's paid attention to. People in the mostly liberal city of New York want to do something about it. You as the boss of the jail wanted to do something about it. Your bosses, like the former mayor Bill de Blasio, wanted to do something about it. And something has not been done. What does that tell you either about Rikers or some of the problems with justice and uh, criminal justice reform in America? I think that for the most part, most people don't really care about what goes on in these systems at any kind of deep level. I think that's true of probation and parole. I think that's true of Rikers Island. Unless your kid or your brother or your husband or your daughter is part of one of these systems, it's not grabbing you every day like inflation, gas prices, unemployment. Those things really touch people in a very visceral way. This stuff, I don't think people like that their city's jail is a, is a horror show, but it's not what's keeping them awake at night for a lot of people. And as a result, I think a lot of laws were passed, a lot of um, contracts were signed that essentially kind of gave away the ability to run that place to the staff in ways that are just crazy and make it ungovernable. You know, unlimited sick leave being an example of many days when a third of my staff wasn't available and I had living units with nobody on them, no correctional officers, and people were getting stabbed and people were dying. And so, uh, I, you know, one of the things I supported when I was corrections commissioner, I, I told the administration we should support a receivership because the receivership would allow sort of a reasonable re-examination of some of those contracts and some of those laws that would allow the place to be governed. Right now, it is ungovernable, in my view, and I, I think the calls for receivership are well-founded. That's politically anathema to a mayor, because <clears throat> the mayor will say, the mayor, whoever the mayor is, even if the mayor is a reformer and de Blasio was one, it will mark a major part of what's under the mayor's purview as a failure. We couldn't do it. We threw up our hands. So did you run into that as a problem? Yeah, and I, I don't think it's just politics, right? By the time you become mayor of New York City or commissioner of the New York City Department of Correction, you think you know what to do, right? You're a believer yeah. in yourself. You can't do this stuff unless to some degree you have an unreasonable belief in your own abilities. And I've never met a mayor that didn't have that. And I've never met a, a head of a big department that didn't have that. We think we can Wait, do it. Wait, you were, you were that. I, I was that, yeah. And when I went in, I thought I could do it. Oh, so you're self-critiquing here. Absolutely. Yeah. And so and and so was the mayor. And yeah. so, you know, I when I did the math though, and I talked to some colleagues, they're like, 
Vinny, you just can't get there from here. Mm -hmm. If your staff can look you in the eye when you say, Mike, I need you to go over to that living unit and be a correctional officer in that living unit. And Mike, you can say, oh, no, my heart hurts. I'm going to call an ambulance and leave work right now, which, which literally happened. Mm -hmm. Well, then, then you can't govern that place and, and something extraordinary needs to happen. And in this case, I believe a receivership needs to happen. But it's hard. You know, it's really hard to convince a, a, a you know, high achieving elected official that that's the way to go. And I think the new mayor and the new commissioner wanted to see what they could do. Yeah. And I, I, I think that the evidence is not good. On, on what they've been able to do. And I think receivership is, is time has come. Well, not to make this too New York centric, but everyone knows about Rikers. Um, there is a plan and it depends on the neighborhood jails being able to take the, um, the number of people who were at Rikers diffused through the neighborhoods. Because let's be realistic, even though you advocate for decarceration, uh, that that hasn't happened yet. It's not going to happen to the degree where you're not going to get thousands of people, 5,000 people or so, who need to be put in these neighborhood jails. Then you run into the neighborhoods not wanting that. But we also don't have the number, we haven't gotten the numbers that low as crime has spiked. In your estimation, is that plan, let's get the neighborhood jails, housing, this number of people, does that only seem like a plan, but it is really impossible when you think about the numbers and you think about the community objections? Uh, I mean, so there's a lot to unpack in that mm -hmm. question. Uh, let's start with the community objections. That was dealt with. They they have a, this problem called process called ULERP, Uniform Land Use Something Something. Yeah. Um, and at some point, the legislature, the, the city council has to vote on whether they accept these four sites, and they have done that. So that's done, right? doesn't mean the communities don't still object. It just means that their objections can't stop the jails if the mayor wants to go forward. Now, as far as the population's concerned, really one of the big issues there isn't crime increasing. Yes, it, it's gone up. It's also gone back down again. It's really cases moving too slowly through the system. I mean, I had some people there for five years waiting to get their cases resolved. And when we crunched the data, the people that stayed the longest had the most problems because it's a jail. It's not meant to keep people there more than a few weeks. Yeah. So if you could get the cases And, and, to and it's more, used as a mental health facility, but it's not supposed to be. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you could get the cases to move as quickly as they were moving a few years ago, we could fit the people in Rikers Island in the four jails that are being built right now. So it's not, you know, it's, it's portrayed as, oh, set them all free. It's like, no, just get the wheels of justice to turn more quickly and you'd be able to fit people. And it's not, it's not locking people up for public safety reasons. It's locking people up for inefficiency reasons. Get them to wherever they're going to go next. If that means they're going to go out on probation, get that to happen. If that means they're going to state prison, get that to happen. But stop this sort of waiting thing that we as city taxpayers pay for and that destroys the, 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 the running of a smooth jail. Why is it so slow? Uh, you know, courts move slow because of a million reasons. I know, but you're comparing it to how it was moving, right? Courts used to move faster. And there was an uptick in crime, a significant one, 30% with murders. Then the latest statistics uh, show it's down about 10%. So there is some more crime, although that's maybe not all the crime clogging the courts. Just wanted to lay that out there. Yeah, I mean, 
you know, court systems are inefficient for a million different reasons, part of which is the people who get to decide how quickly things move and the people who have to run the jail are different people. So, you know, for me as commissioner, for the current commissioner, I'm sure, people sitting around and waiting is a big problem. It's kind of not a problem for the prosecutors, defense attorneys, and judges. Now, that doesn't mean they are not decent people and they couldn't try, but it needs to be a priority. I'm not sure it's a priority for this mayor. It definitely was a priority for Mayor de Blasio. Yeah. And again, I, I want to take it outside of New York City in a second, but everyone listening to this who isn't in New York City can say, oh yeah, I know what the equivalent is in my town or city. If you look at institutions, long entrenched institutions, that there needs to just be some reform. If I find, if politicians really prioritize that and sell that, look at what Bloomberg and Lightfoot and other mayors did with failing schools. They were able to break up the failing schools. There were still unions involved. There were still some community objections. But when the political will is there, it happened. And I think this comes back to what you were talking about with the jails that no one feels it as acutely uh, as they do kids and schools. It's kind of someone else's problem, an abstract problem. Oh, that I hear that's sad, but you know, I'm not going to let it be priority one through 10 for me. Yeah, I agree. Okay, let's get, to, let's get to supervision, parole, and probation. Mayor Bloomberg hires you to run the division, and he's very personable at first, and he cares about your background, and he's asking you questions. And then it comes to the actual job. Okay, um, probation, the Department of Probation. And he has, he just, what, a, a look comes over his face like, oh God, we got to talk about probation? Yeah, it was pretty hysterical, really. I mean, he was so much more enthusiastic about what high school and, and college I went to, which were all New York City schools and New York State schools, what neighborhood I grew up in. He was getting grief for hiring people from all over the country. And finally, he's got a New Yorker that he thinks he's going to get to hire. So yeah, you know, yeah. We, got we with an actual accent, not, yeah, not yeah. a slight Boston <laughs> right, accent like he has. Right, yeah. I'm not making this up. I really grew up in Greenpoint, right? I really went to Regis High School. I really went to SUNY Binghamton. So he's pretty happy about that. And then it's kind of like, ah, so uh, what do you think about probation? <laughs> it's like that kind of thing. Like, and, uh, and he's a decent guy and he really cared about all these issues in public safety. But I just don't think a lot of politicians give this much thought and know what to do about it. And that's part of the reason I think change is is needs to happen and is a little scary but yeah. yeah so then i said well you know i don't know if you were if you were if i came to you with 80 million dollars which was the budget of the department and thirty thousand troubled and troubling souls and said do whatever you want to fix this problem i'm pretty sure what you wouldn't do is run out and hire a thousand civil service protected, disinterested bureaucrats to have them piss in a cup once a week and tell them to go forth and sin no more. And he said, no, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't do that. Yeah. And so I said, well, I haven't been in your department, so I'm not critiquing your particular place, but I bet that's what you got right now. And it were yeah. three deputy mayors in the room. He looked over at all three of them. They shrugged and said, yeah, that's pretty much what we got right now. And then, you know, a brawl broke out in the room. We started spitballing. We should privatize it. We should, you know, do this we should do that and i was like okay i can work here because because it was an honest debate and discussion and people weren't defensive they were they were leaning into this conversation but mm -hmm. i don't think that conversation happens enough uh about this this thing that you know has in its control twice as many people 
as are locked up in all of our prisons and jails combined, probation and parole. New York has very tough gun laws, and not just on the books. They're enforced in a very tough way. There are some innovative diversion programs that individual DAs like the Brooklyn DA endorsed, but there is a near certainty that if you are arrested or even patted down and there's a gun in your possession, you're going to do jail time. Now, yep. on the one hand, this leads to incarceration. But on the other hand, New York, which with its strictest gun laws in the country, also had murder rates below the national average. And as you know, if you look at the decline in murder rates, it was amazing. I've come to the conclusion that New York is very strict. Um, opponents would call them draconian gun laws. Absolutely had an effect on saving lives and, and uh, decreasing homicide. Uh, do you think that they were worth it? Or, or maybe you think that the conclusion I came to isn't even justified? You know, I think that if you have laws that are going to incarcerate people ranging from Bernie Getz to Plaxico Burris, mm -hmm. you know that's a serious gun mandatory sentence. Yeah. Right? Like if the guy wins the MVP on a Super Bowl winning team and goes to prison behind his first defense gun. His first defense after shooting himself in, in his own foot. leg. Yes. Right. In the leg. Right. So. <laughs> That's a very, very serious gun crime. And I, I, I'm, I'm not a person who says that incarceration has no deterrent or incapacitative effect. Of course it does. Should we have more in, you know, like, even if you have a strong law and there's some, you know, exceptions that prosecutors and courts can use, I still think you buy a lot of deterrent effect. And my bet is sending Plaxico Burris to prison for those couple of years that he did was a waste of state money. Mm. Now it did send a message. So I think there's ways to skin this cat without throwing a baby out with the bathwater. And I think, frankly, New York is probably a better example of doing that than any other place, which is why we have so few people locked up. We will continue this conversation tomorrow where we dive into the book and talk about what Mr. Chiraldi feels is the best way to change the system, to keep people out of or to keep people from returning to prison. That's tomorrow on The Gist. And now the spiel. We at The Gist vow to bring you all the impeachment news. Well, all the impeachment of Joe Biden news, if there is one, and there just may be one. But there's also an impeachment of Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton going on down there. Let's pop in for coverage of the cross-examination of a Texas Ranger. Why is it that every time I ask you if you've taught folks to testify, you suddenly can't hear the question? Actually, my testifying, I learned by experience. Okay. And is that one of the things you've learned by experience, Ranger, to pause and act like you haven't heard the question? Maybe. Fair enough. What did you learn? Clever silence that speaks loudest of all. Well, so does mockery to a large extent. Senator John Fetterman of Pennsylvania was asked about the impeachment inquiry authorized by Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy. Here's Senator Fetterman's reaction. I'm asking about this news that uh, Speaker McCarthy has formally launched an impeachment inquiry. Has said he's going to. Oh my God, really? Oh my gosh. You know, oh, it's devastating. <laughs> Ooh, don't do it. Please don't do it. 
Oh no, oh no. But they are going to do it. Just an inquiry, just asking questions. Who knows where the questions will lead? The savvy insiders at Punchbowl News do, and their answer is inexorably in an actual impeachment. They write, quote, it's almost guaranteed that House Republicans will impeach Biden. Remember, a sizable number of Republicans were ready to impeach before the inquiry even began. And once the House has begun the process, not impeaching Biden will look like a validation of the president to many rank and file lawmakers. This may be too much for McCarthy to control. Almost guaranteed, that was their phrase. I think that's a bit strong, but I think you'd definitely make a case that it's more likely than not that we'll get an impeachment. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. Because Chinese diamonds were smuggled in Hunter Biden's ass after a Chinese billionaire gave it to him. No, actually, that didn't happen. There are some salacious stories out there. Chinese diamonds do come into play. Here's the fairest way to put the allegations that a Republican who supports the impeachment would side on to, to be fair. While Joe Biden was vice president of the United States in charge of rooting out corruption in Ukraine, his son Hunter worked for a Ukrainian company that wound up being corrupt. Jim Jordan and others clamoring loudest for impeachment would add facts not in evidence like, and Joe Biden warped U.S. policy for the benefit of Hunter and Hunter's money wound up in circuitous ways benefiting the Biden family. They probably add crime, the Biden crime family. That remains to be proved. The difficulty of acquiring proof is that solid evidence is elusive. Another difficulty in acquiring proof could very well be it never happened. But even if it didn't happen, those Republicans, the ones clamoring for impeachment, will spin a tale that, yes, okay, we couldn't prove it because we were just thwarted. It was the successful subterfuge of the drug-addled son and the cognitively impaired president. Or maybe, you know, like I said, it didn't happen. But I will say this, keep tuning into this space. I would say there is no one who is both more informed and more fair than I am on this issue. Now, how do I define fair? I think, I phrased it, that Biden was in charge of corruption and there was corruption going on with a guy named Biden. I think that if evidence comes to the fore or even is in the background, I'll credit it. I will credit the evidence. I have not predetermined or prejudged what the evidence might find. I also follow this aspect of the story pretty well. I have had to put the Ken Paxson impeachment on the back burner, but I follow a lot of it. I have some, oh, I don't want to be so grandiose sources, but I talk to a lot of people who know a lot of people. So I'm watching this pretty closely and you could trust me if there really is some plausibly damaging evidence, I'll cite it. And if there is some nonsense going on, I'll also cite it. And in fact, I did a podcast called Live from the Table with uh, Eli Lake, who actually has a lot of sources and is very well read in on this. And a couple of Michael Moynihan, who's a journalist, Noam Dorman, who hosted the podcast. And we'll put that in the feed. If you've not been following it, some of it might seem a little confusing, but I have been doing a lot of work on this subject, we'll continue to do so for you, for you, my friends, and democracy, but also you. But let's do this. Let's get a read on how all of this will ultimately play out in the Senate by listening to Senate Republicans. Here's Tom Tillis of North Carolina. I don't think that it's going to result in a removal on the Senate side, but if there's meaningful information that they think the American people need to know about, I'm okay with it. 
All right. He seems like not opposed if there is something, but he doesn't seem too enthused or optimistic that they're going to find something. Here's John Thune, the Senate's number two Republican, worried about an impeachment trial taking up too much time. It's a written quote, quote, I don't think it would be advantageous, obviously, if this thing went further with all the other things we have to do to go through another trial. That strongly implies that there's nothing there. Thune wouldn't worry about a duty to remove a demonstrably corrupt president if he thought that it was demonstrated that the president was corrupt. Plausible impeachment followed by highly improbable conviction. Today, that is how the process seems like it will play out. But how will the politics play out? The Democrats, given Senator Fetterman's evocation of the finger-waggling international sign for fratycatism, seem to think it won't hurt the president. Bring it on. The Senate Republicans, and I could have quoted several more, are pretty skeptical of the usefulness of the impeachment inquiry. The House Republicans are mostly on board with the impeachment inquiry, or at least feel they have to be, to keep in good standing with their Biden-hating base, though there are 18 representatives serving in districts that Biden won. They may get less convicted the more it becomes clear Joe Biden won't be. Then you got the Freedom Caucus and the most hardcore Republicans driving this train. In this case, the mange wags the dog. And there may yet be some actual, real, damaging, demonstrable evidence as a result of this inquiry. I'm not precluding the possibility of some amount of meat on the corruption allegation bone. But if not, going deep into these Ukrainian matters might go as bad for House Republicans as it did for others on Team Red. Just saying. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is in charge of cat transport for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening.